The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a glimpse behind the scenes of the History of Literature podcast. I was looking for an introduction, and I remembered some lines from Blake about Milton. Something about justifying the ways of God to man and mead having something to do with it. Mead, as in the alcoholic beverage. Perfect, I thought. Today's guest, Ed Simon, has written a book about reading Milton through the framework of an alcoholic's and a recovering alcoholic's journey. So we'll be all set, I think to myself. I'll deliver the quote, we'll run the theme song, we'll look at an Emily Dickinson poem, and then we'll bring out the guest. Of course, I needed a memory check. The quote I was thinking of was not about mead, but malt, the basis for beer. Well, that's pretty close. Took some Googling to figure it out, but I was on the right track. And it was not Blake, as it turned out, but A.E. Hausman. The lines were from 1896's A Shropshire Lad, and they are, Malt does more than Milton can to justify God's ways to man. There we go. That's perfect. I even found an interesting article on LitHub that elaborated on everything. It was right there, the top item listed on Google. And of course, as it turned out, the article was by today's guest, Ed Simon. This is his field after all, and it occurred to me it was probably in his book that I first encountered the lines a couple of months ago. Even shakily drawn circles must complete. And so, as our behind-the-scenes curtain closes, we amend Hausman with a couplet of our own. Malt does more than Milton can to justify God's ways to man. And Simon, drunk on Milton's God, discusses both on today's pod. Okay, here we go. Oh boy, that is probably the first attempt at poetry in the introduction, and it reconfirms my status as an unintentionally bad poet, which, as you may know, is one of my obsessions, or at least it used to be. See our bad poetry episode in the archives for more about that. Okay, we'll start with a very good poet, one of the absolute best, Emily Dickinson. And then we'll talk to Ed Simon about his book, Heaven, Hell, and Paradise Lost, part of the bookmarked series by Ig Publishing, which takes a personal approach to reading classic works of literature. Dickinson and then Milton. It's like we're gazing at poetic Mount Rushmore today. With Emily, we jump from Dickinson poem number 129 to 134. We have yet another bee in this poem. Speaking of obsessions, Emily loved bees. How many of these have we done so far? And how many of them have included bees? Well, no need to be rhetorical when we can count. So let me check. This is our seventh Dickinson poem in this little mini-series we're doing. The first one, the first poem had a B. <laughs> second, second did not. Third did not. Fourth one, a B again. Fifth, no. Sixth, no. Seventh, yes. So seven poems and three Bs. A fairly high percentage. 42% she's running. <laughs> However, 
This poem is our first one with a girdle, which here means a belt. And it's our first one with a harebell, H-A-R-E, bell, which is a flower, often called a bluebell. Very pretty flower. And look at this. Look at this. We have paradise and Eden in this poem. This was not planned. I didn't select this specifically to go with today's theme of Paradise Lost. We're going through Dickinson's poems in order, as selected by esteemed critic Helen Vendler. There was no attempt to tie things into Milton and, and Paradise Lost. But guess what? Eden is also a common Dickinsonian theme, so it's not all that surprising. If we have an expert on bees at some point as a guest, which is not likely, but hey... You never know. If we do have an expert on bees, I'm not going to be shocked if the poem that day has a bee reference. Okay, here we go. Number 134, the first stanza. Did the harebell loose her girdle to the lover bee? Would the bee the harebell hallow much as formerly? It's a little steamy, isn't it? Okay, next stanza. Did the paradise, persuaded, yield her moat of pearl? Would the Eden be an Eden, or the Earl an Earl? What is going on in this poem? What is going on? You've probably heard that old saw about parents telling children about the birds and the bees, meaning the facts of life, meaning sex. And how it works? Well, here's Emily Dickinson, sexing things up with the bees and the flowers, making a point about sex, a satirical point. As it turns out, Helen Vendler's commentary eventually gets around to explaining this a bit, but first she starts out with the fabulous phrase, willingly uncinctured to talk about the flower, getting ready for the bee. My, my. Bring me my handkerchief and smelling salts, I do declare. A fainting spell. I feel a fainting spell about to come on. Well, I'm kidding. I love Helen Vandler, but that's pretty rich. Willingly uncinctured, meaning you pull off your belt and, and get ready. The poem begins, she says, with an anthropomorphized lover bee and a willingly uncinctured flower, meaning the flower has loosened its girdle, stripped off its belt, getting ready for the lover, the bee. What was that line of NBA star Dikembe Mutombo when he walked into the Atlanta strip club? Who wants to sex Mutombo? He called out. Well... Here's the flower. Who wants to sex harebell? <laughs> Get over here, B. Okay. Dickinson here is mocking the idea, present then as well as now. Unfortunately, hopefully we're getting better, but this idea has been around for so many centuries, it's hard to believe we're ever going to shake it completely. We're talking about the old double standard. The idea that men who engage in premarital sex are forgiven, even sometimes championed, and women who do the same are shamed forever. 
This is Dickinson's point. Kind of ahead of her time, seems. Or maybe not, but I'm glad to see that there were people pushing back against this even 150 years ago. So first, we're in the realm of the bees and the flowers in the first stanza, where it's it's ridiculous even to raise this issue, isn't it? Hallow is in italics. Sure, it's hallowing if we're talking about insects and flowers, God's innocent gift to the world, creating and recreating. That's part of the beauty of nature, right? That's what Emily seems to be saying. But would you, you puritanical hypocrite, call this hallowing if we view the bee as a lover and the flower is loosening her belt, getting ready for his arrival? No, you wouldn't view that as hallowed. You'd probably uh, slut-shame her for that, wouldn't you? If that was... If we're going to anthropomorphize the bee and the flower, suddenly you're not all on board with the beauty of this. Now you're you're casting judgments, aren't you? So then we get the second stanza where we turn to a couple, an earl and a paradise. A woman who a virtuous woman and paradise here is in quotes, because that's a bit ridiculous, too. Paradise, the woman is supposed to be paradise. Why can't she just be a, a human being with flaws, too? Paradise here is with a pearl, a sacred something, a sacred virginity, something she's supposed to protect. She has a moat with this pearl. And yet, if she's persuaded to yield it, if it's her choice, if she's persuaded by an earl, let's say, an upper-class guy, society's hero, literally a nobleman, would we still say that she's an Eden? No. No, we wouldn't, would we? Not if she's persuaded, not if she loosens her girdle, to get ready, then the Eden would be no more. Paradise will have been lost. But would the Earl still be an Earl? Why don't we take him down a few pegs for his roguish behavior? Well, we know what happens there, don't we? The Earl will go on to conquer new paradises. And you know that's how it works, you hypocrite. This wasn't one of the poems that Emily collected into the little book-like creations that she printed up and sewed together, and it wasn't even written in pen. She left it in pencil, maybe because she didn't think it rose to her standard, or maybe she thought it was a little too hard to parse. And it's true that it comes at its point obliquely. The Earl just kind of pops up. One suspects. One suspects that maybe Earl was... Useful because it rhymed with pearl. Mm-hmm. It'd be, but anyway, I think it. I think it's more that it it makes its point, but it's a little obscure. It'd be as if our NBA star Dikembe Mutombo walked into the strip club and said, "Are there any harebells willing to loose their girdle for the Earl? No, not one willing to uncincture. Okay, fine." 
I'll go find some other moat of pearl to hallow. Where would that have gotten him? Okay, that was Emily Dickinson, number 134. Ed Simon and Milton are next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, Ed Simon is the author of several books, including Printed in Utopia, The Radicalism of the Renaissance, and Pandemonium, A Visual History of Demonology. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Paris Review Daily, Poetry, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and dozens of other places. He's here today to discuss his book in the celebrated Bookmarked series by Ig Publishing, Heaven, Hell, and Paradise Lost. Ed Simon, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for uh, having me here. It's great to be on the show. So let's start where the book does. In London in 2013, where were you in life? What were you doing that sure. summer? Like very much set the stage, London yeah. in 2013. A smog, <laughs> smoggy summer. Um, so I was, uh, I was fortunate enough, uh, and this is one of these things that I think comes out of the privilege of being a grad student, which is oftentimes a position that doesn't have a lot of privileges, you know, particularly in terms mm-hmm. of remuneration. Um, but I was uh, I was lucky this summer to receive a fellowship from the university where I got my PhD from, and I spent two months in London working at the British Library. So mm. I was doing research for my dissertation, and I was living in Kings Cross, London. So right around the Kings Cross Station, British libraries right there, of course. British Museum isn't far away. And so I was living in a a very strange dorm room at the University of London, right near Grimaldi Park, which is actually named after the the father of clowning. Mm. (laughs) He was buried in the park. And so I, it was like this very hot kind of London summer, uncharacteristically hot, though, of course, more common as the years go on. And basically, I spent my days at the British Library because it was like the only air-conditioned place I could find. So I actually did the work that I was getting paid to do, transcribing uh, 16th and 17th century uh, pamphlets and texts and things like that. 
And then at night, I either would go to the theater or I would get spectacularly blackout drunk at the uh, the various pubs that were uh, in my neighborhood. And that was basically that was basically my two months that I was in London. Mm. And then we'll hold off on this story, but you were also on your way to see Milton's grave at some point. But let's, I was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's hang on to that for now because sure. I want to. I want to come back to that. But and for listeners who might think that I'm probing in a sort of personal way or more personally than I than I usually get here, this is sort of the point of the book. This is the point of the series: is that it combines an interest in a work with the personal history of the author. And in your case, it involves your drinking. It does, which I should, I should say, I guess at the outset that I am approaching eight years sober this mm. August. So it's not, uh, if people are worried about how uh, kind of uh, debauched or how, I guess, I mean, the book is slightly debauched, but how uncritical it is of that behavior. I, I want to disavow anyone that it's like an uncomplicated uh, celebration of dissolute living or something. Right, uh, because right. I, I'm very much not supposed to be. But it's interesting because, you know, I've written about uh, my drinking and my sobriety in all sorts of other venues here or there. And it's not something that over the past few years I've been particularly shy about talking about necessarily. But this is definitely the, I think, the most sustained effort or the most sustained work that I've done that's specifically, at least in part, uh, about that aspect of my life. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I didn't necessarily, so when I pitched this to Robert Lasner at Ig Publishing, I knew that I wanted to do Paradise Lost, uh, because Paradise Lost is one of the most important books in my life. And I think it's one of those uh, works that like lots of people have heard of, but very few people have read. It intersects with my own academic interests. But, uh, you know, when I made this pitch, I wasn't like, this is going to be uh, a drunkologue story about me uh, and sort of, you know, the, the various things and mistakes and errors I've made in my life and how, like, Milton pulled me out of it necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I did see certain parallels, I think, thematically to the theological and literary and philosophical concerns of somebody like John Milton and my own, my own life. So I think it's like a framing device. You know, and it worked really well, and I didn't necessarily know when I sat down that that's how it was going to happen. But I think sometimes books kind of write themselves almost. Yeah. Uh, not in terms of the, the ease of them, but you like you kind of write them to figure out what it is that you want to say, if that makes sense. And that was very much the case with this particular book. So once I began the first chapter, and each one of the chapters, 12 chapters, in parallel to the 12 books of Paradise Lost. And each one's kind of on like a thematic concern that Milton explores. So it doesn't like chronologically go through the poem per se, but the first chapter is on sin. And so I kind of begin with my own consideration of what that concept, which I have a very complicated relationship to, what I have to say, I guess, about sin and how that then relates to some of the things uh, that Milton explores in Paradise Lost. And what made it narratively very satisfying is I happened to be in Milton's hometown reading Milton's contemporaries at the exact same time that I was, you know, in the midst of uh, being a person who drinks way, way too much and should not drink at all. Right. Okay. So some people might find it hard to imagine. We don't have a lot of examples of the Miltonic literary scholars who are also deep in the throes of alcoholism. And and so they're probably wondering kind of how that plays out in terms of your career and your work. And I, I think it might help if you could tell the story of the posh toff that you met while you were at an academic conference. What happened with him and how did your 
your drinking overlap with your scholarship and your pursuit as an academic in that case? Sure. And I think that one of the things is I'm sure there are like <laughs> plenty of alcoholic Milton scholars. Right, right. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not going to be like, don't quote me or I'm like a majority of Milton scholars are like dipsomaniacs or something, but certainly academe and writing has long had, a, I think, a kind of boozy reputation. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's reasons for that, of course, and some of them aren't fair and some of them probably are fair. But one of the things, the, the posh toss story, so this is the story that I, I tell in this first chapter, and it deals with a person who I, I do not know. I don't know his name. I, I'll be honest. I'm like a little worried that when the book gets out there, I'm going to like hear from him <laughs> or something. Uh, and I think a big part of it, too, is uh, probably, you know, memory hobbled together a decade later from bits and pieces of things encountered while like, you know, having had 20 pints of beer or something in me. But the story as I tell it, and as I largely remember it, was that this was a guy who was about my age, who was also a PhD candidate at the time at one of the very elite British universities. And he happened to be uh, attending a conference that I was also attending while I was there doing this research trip. And so one of the things, you know, one of the things the book kind of deals with is not just kind of my relationship with drinking, but also my relationship with academe. And I think that for anyone my age and certainly younger and probably even a few years older than me, there's a there's I mean, there's always a complicated relationship with academe because there's stuff about it that is traumatic or toxic in addition to being, you know, really, really good and really enlightening. But uh, particularly at this point in time where we kind of see higher ed in a, in a certain sort of collapse being born out of, uh, you know, economic reasons, mm. there's like an extra kind of, uh, I think, complexity with our own relationship to being people that have alphabet soup after our name, right? So the, the posh toss was a, a British guy in his late 20s who was at this conference, and I encountered him afterwards as I was kind of like, I don't want to say going on a bender because it was kind of a, a regular run of the mill evening for me, but I was like five or six drinks in by the time I ran into him. And so I, you know, was talking to him very friendly uh, or, you know, from my perspective, I was trying to be very friendly and he was very uh, withering, borderline cruel in terms of his appraisal of uh, how my talk had gone. And mm-hmm. I knew that my, my talk had gone poorly. Like I got it. It was not, It was not a great paper, but it's the sort of thing that uh, it's tough to hear, right? And one of the things in academia is you hear criticism all the time, like all the time. And I don't think that that's necessarily bad. I think one of the great things about getting a PhD is it helps you keep your own kind of shit in check sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it also has a tendency, I think, to turn into kind of a a blood sport for its own purpose. And and there's there's a high degree of bad faith sometimes in in these sorts of uh, things. The other thing I'll say is before I had done this, I actually have another graduate degree from a a British institution, and I'd lived for about six months in in Glasgow, Scotland, which I loved. It was a fantastic experience. This was about like six or seven years before I was in London for this conference. Uh, And my experience with British higher ed, and and I think it speaks to its credit in some ways, is they will be very blunt and upfront about what they disagree with you to your face. And I, mm-hmm. I think that there's something fair in that, right? Uh, whereas Americans, I think, tend to be a little more obsequious sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then they'll, they'll talk about you when you're, when Stab you're you in the back. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But anyhow, he just, he really laid into it and it, it had uh, like every academic I had my own set of kind of uh, uh, anxiety about sure. you know, what I knew about and if I was doing things well. 
And, you know, I enjoyed my time at my program. I think I greatly benefited uh, from it and I learned a lot from it. But it's not Oxford or Cambridge, obviously, mm-hmm. and it's not yep. Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. Right. Uh, and so being very cognizant of this kind of, um, I guess, class difference, for lack of a, a better term, also kind of like hit me, right? And for someone like Milton, it, it seems like that would be even accentuated because it's, it's kind of a rarefied figure to be studying. Yes, exactly. That's a really important point. You know, I come out of Renaissance literature is my my specialty, specifically like the 17th century and literature of the Reformation. And you're absolutely right. It's not writing about the walking dead or something, mm-hmm. right? Like right. it's a, and not that there's anything wrong with that either, but it, it has certain elitist associations and for good reason, right? And so I, I think that kind of doubled into it as well. But in the story that I tell, I talk about how I kind of came to a, a certain conscious decision about how I was going to respond to this, this sort of criticism. And so basically, I went on this pub crawl with this guy. We went to about oh, like six or seven different pubs. And uh, you know, one of the things I joke about in the book is like, whether or not I knew my Milton well, I definitely knew how to drink well. Like I had a, <laughs> I had a certain kind of dark pride in that. So I basically got him to a point where he, in, in my memory, where he was just shit-faced. And I knew that he had his presentation at like 8 o'clock the next morning. Mm. And so I, I kind of, I portray it as this act, this conscious act on my behalf of getting a competitor basically very, very drunk to kind of sabotage his presentation. Yeah, And I have no idea how things went. I was obviously too hungover to go the next day. I mean, I absolutely went out drinking with this guy and he was a jackass too. Like that part is true. But I don't know how much of like what I was doing was like purposely trying to sabotage him so much as that's been kind of embellished and retconned over the years. At the very least, I know that somebody has an eight o'clock presentation in the morning and I don't care about like, let's do one more drink. You know what I mean? And I think it still speaks to one of the things that I was trying to talk about in that chapter. And one of the things I think that's so interesting in Milton, which is kind of the fallen nature of people. Right, right. right. Uh, and, And I think that's the major theme in the book is the kind of like, we all to varying degrees, obviously, have a propensity in us to do stuff that's not great. Right. And that that is kind of the subject of great literature. And what does that mean? And how do we try and be a little bit better since we can't be perfect? Well, let's talk about uh, something else you talk about in the chapter, which is the difference between soteriological literature and mere story. What do you mean by soteriological literature and how does Milton fit in with that? Sure. So soteriology is a, it's a branch of theology, and it basically deals with the question of what is salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Who merits salvation? How do you achieve salvation? How do you make amends for things? How do you make yourself worthy of a, of a type of goodness that by our very nature is difficult for us to kind of achieve if, if we are ever able to achieve it? Mm-hmm. One of the slight benefits to the collapse of higher education is that those of us who come out of academic training can now make kind of critical arguments that are grandiose and over the top. And it doesn't really matter because we're not writing in like a peer reviewed academic journal where somebody who's like an expert on like buttons from 1657 gets angry at us for you know mm, getting right. some minor critical interpretation that they disagree with. And so the argument I make is I make this argument where I say that there's something called soteriological literature, which is basically literature 
that concerns itself with the question of what does it look like when a good person goes bad, basically, or it's opposite when a bad person becomes good, right? Right. Basically, a, a term that I'm using for moral literature, for ethical literature. So I make this argument where I say it's like the greatest form of literature. And I kind of make that argument in part because I just think that's an interesting idea. And I wanted to sort of probe and and push at that. I don't necessarily know if I always agree with it or not, but I I wanted to kind of like stake my flag and make this like very, because that's a very 17th century thing too, right? Like you just kind of like make a claim and people, even it can be huge and people either hate it or they don't. But one of the things that I was thinking about with sotrological literature in particular is that I don't want people to think it's mere didactic literature, right? Right, right. It's not the virtuous shall be rewarded. It's exactly. more the the drama that comes from great people falling or from people rising up and, and finding a kind of recovery from their sins or their wickedness that mirrors the drama of human life. And absolutely, we, we see that in the Scarlet Letter or Anna Karenina, Great Expectations. I think you say Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. These are works where it treats the fullness of humans with all their frailties and all their capacity for greatness, but it does so not by kind of making a a cookie-cutter virtuous figure or a a debauched sinner and then punishing that person, but showing the arc that people have and the possibility for redemption or the possibility for the fall. Absolutely. You just summed it up perfectly. That's exactly what I was trying to convey in that chapter. And, And I think that, yeah, I think soterological literature is commensurate with the complexity of the human psyche. I think really fascinating characters, everyone's a fascinating character in real life, right? Because everyone has this profound interiority and has a a mixture of good and bad to varying degrees. But when we're talking about fictional representations uh, of characters that are interesting, I think having that quality conveyed is important. And, And it's really the exact opposite, really, of didactic literature. Or if we think of didactic literature, as you described it so well, where, you know, bad people are punished and good people are rewarded. And it's basically a type of, like, theological propaganda at the end of the day. And and I do think that we live, in some sense, in an era where we maybe uncritically view the purpose of literature as being didactic. Hmm. I think that Adam Costco, who's a professor at Shimmer College, I think, and he's an incredibly bright philosopher and theologian and cultural critic. He, he wrote a piece that was in The Atlantic, and he grew up in an evangelical Christian household where very much the way in which people read books or movies or whatever was, is this good for your soul or not? It was kind of the like arbiter, right? Uh, and he said, we kind of all read literature that way now. And, and I think there's some truth to that, that we don't read uh, bad or good characters in their complexity. We think that if authors write bad characters, then the literature must be bad. Mm, and that we should avoid it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think with soterological literature, I'm very much fascinated by these like it's tremendously complex motivations that are a mixture of contradictory things and uh, what they say about somebody's life, basically. Right. We're coming up on a break, but I'm going to try to unite your experience with the Posh Toff with what we're going to see in Milton. Sure. So here's what I'm taking from this, is that you have this experience with the Posh Toff. <laughs> can't stop using that phrase. Uh, and you could say, well, why did you do what you did? 
and we can look at kind of the details of the story that you've given and say, well, here's someone who felt embarrassed by his performance and and was in a moment of weakness and potential humiliation. He lashed out, hoping to assuage his pain by inflicting some pain on another. And what I gather is that Milton would say, okay, that's fine, but why do human beings do that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's take a quick break and come back and we'll hear all about Milton and Paradise Lost. Okay, we're back. Ed Simon, let's take a little pause and and rewind a little bit and sure. and look at when you started reading Milton and what your initial impressions of him were. Yeah, so uh, my introduction to Milton, you know, I got a little bit of him as an undergrad. I was an English major at a small liberal arts college uh, just south of Pittsburgh, where I'm from and where where I live again. And uh, I was in a Britlet one class. I was taught by uh, a fantastically old school Tweedy kind of professor. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had one of those massive Norton anthologies of literature that had like the Bible paper that's like semi-transparent. Yep, yep, I know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was not a particularly uh, diligent student when I was an undergrad. So I kind of like turned a page, I think, by the time I hit my junior year. But I did not actually do well in this class, even though even though I liked it. So I always joke that I like earned my C plus in that class. Uh, and a, a large portion of it was just not, you know, my mind wandered. I looked out the window at stuff. I just this was like pre smartphone era. So instead of having like Twitter to look at or X or whatever it's called now, I had uh, only like the rich contours of my own beautiful mind to explore. That was yeah. sort of the daydreaming. Yeah, exactly. And so I would flip through the Norton. And I came before we read it in the class. We only read like portions of it because it's a it's a tough poem to do with undergrads, especially like sophomores. Mm-hmm. I just kind of became enraptured by this tremendously strange poem, mm. uh, and I didn't understand what I was reading. And, and you know, there's still large portions of Milton that like I think I have difficulty understanding, but that's why it's a canonical poem too, because I think everyone. Even the experts on Milton have problems understanding it, which is why we're still talking about him 350 years later. But he writes in this this blank verse, so unrhymed iambic pentameter, and these sentences kind of unspool over the course of the poem mm. in a way where you have imagery and references and descriptions and incredible turns of phrase that sort of pile up and you feel like you're in like a maelstrom or something, right? He's kind of throwing all of these things at you and he speaks in a way doesn't read like the Bible per se. It's much more complicated to read than the Bible. Though, of course, Milton, as like a, a Puritan of a sort, was certainly enmeshed in the Bible. And the narrative is from the Bible, at least, you know, the broad overreaching story of it is. But I think it's just the, the strangeness of the language mm. pulled me in. And it's mm-hmm. just this kind of it's like the secret text I found or something. Yeah. And so I was drawn to Milton ever since then. And this is 20 years ago now. Yeah. It's like a strange language, but he's so self-assured with it. That's the thing that always strikes me. It's incredible. Yeah. He's not somebody who seems like he's being odd for his own sake or that he's inventing a language because he can't think of what he needs to say or something. He, it seems like he's talking the way he would assume that we would all talk if we were only as intelligent as him. 
Well, yeah, he has to do this thing too, where it's like in the prologue <laughs> where he's, you know, he's going to do things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. Yeah, right. And I joke in the book, I'm like, and then he did it. Yeah. <laughs> you right, know? right. He basically rewrites Genesis, or at least the first part of Genesis, and creates this massive maximalist poem that touches on like pretty much every issue or, or controversy or question of the time in which he was writing. And then the circumstances of its composition are so amazing because he was already celebrated in fame, intellect and, and writer and pamphleteer and poet. And this is towards, uh, you know, the last decades of his life. But he had been involved in the English Civil War on the side that originally won, but then ultimately lost because he was working for the parliamentarians and they chopped off the king's head, but then the king's son comes back a decade later, and the new king is not particularly happy about people who advocated for the decapitation of his father. So Milton, like, barely escapes with his own life, but he's celebrated that they can't really do anything to him. And so Paradise Lost, which is this book, of course, about failed rebellion, in part, comes out of that context. Mm. But then he's also, uh, is, you know, he's blind when he's writing it. He probably had glaucoma, as near as we can tell. And as he records how he wrote it, he says that he just composed it in his head. It came to him in the night. And then he had various scribes, most notably his daughters, who would write it down in the morning. And so for anyone who, who writes, that's such a tremendously impressive and bizarre way of composing that almost does seem kind of quasi-miraculous, right? Like the mm. fact that this like perfect iambic pentameter, and he, we know he edited and, and revised it very little on the whole, uh, certainly compared to how modern writers work. I think that's the confidence, right? It's almost like the, the certainty of a prophet. I mean, it's, it's so not self-effacing because why would he be self-effacing? He's kind of, he's kind of correct in his own estimation of what he's doing, his, his, his abilities. Right. Now, were you coming out of a religious tradition? It was part of the appeal that he was talking about the story of the book of Genesis? No, not really. In terms of my own background, and because religion is my major beat, so it's always kind of like the question I think that people are interested in is sort of figuring out where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, broadly raised as like a, a lapsed cultural Catholic in an uh, overwhelmingly Jewish neighborhood. So my parents were not religious in a particularly conventional sense. I kind of like gave up unorganized religion probably when I was like around 10 or 11 for the most part. Right. I never embraced like a kind of like a cynical new atheist kind of like, you know, mockery of things. I've always been drawn to questions of the sacred and of the numinous and the transcendent because I think that that's where people kind of hash out what ultimate meaning happens to be. And I just think that I've happened to not do it in a particularly rigorous or uh, methodological sort of way, unlike most people who do. But I think the, the benefit for me as a reader of Milton was I was coming to it open to reading this sort of story. I wasn't going to be dismissive of this because, oh, it's in the Bible and that's a bunch of fairy tales or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I was also not going to be constrained with saying he was you know, oh, I, I disagree with this or that interpretation that, that Milton right. is making. And Milton, as an author, is he dabbles in heresy more than a bit. Yeah. Oh, Orthodox Christian tradition as well. So that was kind of my spiritual, I guess, orientation coming to the poem. Right. But in some sense, it almost doesn't matter if one is religious because, I mean, a lot of listeners are, when we said the point, when we asked the question of why do human beings do bad things? They maybe were thinking, well, Milton's got the answer, which he takes from the book of Genesis, which is original sin. I mean, there's the fall and Eve ate the apple. And after that, you know, that was all she wrote. 
But you could also look at it and say, well, it's human nature. I mean, even if you're taking a secular view, you can say, well, humans just can't help but do bad things. It is part of the way every human is built, and we have no perfect people, and part of it is that people are sometimes helpless to do bad things. But let's talk about Milton a little bit, because I don't think it's quite so easy just to say he's taking the concept of original sin and the fall from the Bible. He's kind of interrogating it and advancing certain arguments around that a little more than that might suggest. Yeah, and I I think that that's one of the things that, especially with this project, that draws me so much to Milton, is I am fascinated by this question of original sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my suspicion is that for most people, uh, especially if they did not grow up in, in any Christian denomination is that, you know, original sin's like an ugly concept. It's basically blaming people for stuff that's not their fault from before they were born. And it says that everyone is like irredeemably bad and should should feel guilty. Uh, and I think there's a lot of perception that it has to do specifically with sex, which not that it like doesn't have to do with mm. sex, but that's not, right. that's not the whole thing either. Uh, and, uh, you know, I rather adhere more towards, uh, you know, I kind of take the opposite tact. I kind of take the belief that, like, original sin is the part of Christianity that makes the most sense to me, right? Hmm. Uh, and there's a there's a thing from, it was either G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis, like one of those uh, Catholic apologists, but uh, said that the only empirically verifiable fact in all of Christianity is original sin. And I think that's kind of true, right? I mean, like, the idea that God became human and died on the cross for our sins, like, that's a complicated pill to swallow for me in, in a lot of ways, right? Or like the belief that the wine and wafer turn into the uh, blood and body of Christ uh, during Catholic transubstantiation. That's hard for me to wrap my mind around. That people kind of have an inclination to be selfish or greedy or envious or prideful or, or what have you, that just seems to me to be obvious from life, right? Mm, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of different ways. You can say it's human nature. You can say you can ascribe it to psychoanalytical explanations or, or whatever. But I think the broad contour of that, it is difficult for us to be rationally good. It's impossible for us of our own volition to necessarily just be good, perfect people. I, I, I think that that's more accurate, right? And I think that one of the things, the original sin in the West, it's, it's much more popular in the, in the Latin West, so among Catholics and Protestants than among the Orthodox, and that's because it comes from Augustine, who was a who was a Latin writer, Saint Augustine in the in the fourth century, and I think that he was in opposition to another theologian named Pelagius, and Pelagius believed that people were perfectible, that you could be perfectly good, you could make that decision, and I think when uh, you know when a lot of students or, or whoever encounter this, they think of like Augustine's the bad guy and Pelagius is the good guy, and I don't really see it that way because I think that there's more understanding and more empathy in Augustine. Because we're all going to fail. We're all going to screw up. We're all going to do bad things. We're all going to say shitty things. We're all going to hurt people who we love to varying degrees. Nobody can choose ever from the moment of birth onward to be perfect in every single way. So I think that there's a lot of comfort I kind of take from that uh, uh, idea of original sin. Now, in terms of Milton's change of that, and and I don't, this doesn't necessarily have its origin with Milton, but it's probably the most famous literary explication of it. Uh, is there's a concept called Felix Culpa, and Mm -hmm. that basically means uh, a fortunate fall. So as you read Paradise Lost, I think one of the interpretations that 
probably most Miltonists would have of it is when Adam and Eve are expelled from Eden, when they are tempted uh, by Satan in the form of the snake to eat from the apple of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that that is not an unequivocal tragedy, right? That there's something maybe good or fortunate in that as well. And I think that however we want to think about original sin, whether that's a a metaphor or a poetic concept that we're applying to our lives or, or what have you, I think the idea that that we are made more complicated and more fully human by our flaws and what we do to address those flaws Mm -hmm. is something that I very much I take personally from that sort of orientation, that way of thinking. Well, Christianity needs it, right? In order to square the idea of, well, okay, humans are flawed and sinners, but they were created by God. So God, if he's omnipotent and he can do whatever he wants, why is it human's fault? Why is that a bad thing to just do what God has willed by creating people with these flaws? And the Felix Culpa argument is, well, God believed it was better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist at all. And we can maybe say that this is kind of looking ahead to Jesus and salvation and and kind of the, we wouldn't have that if we didn't have the concept of original sin. Absolutely. And and I think that one of the things, especially if you're secular or you don't conventionally believe in, in a lot of normative Christianity, you know, with Milton, it's always a question of how much of this did he think literally happened? And it's in some ways, it's like the wrong question, I think certain level, he's writing at the time that Newtonian physics is, is being born, and certainly well before Darwin's theory of evolution and events in geology, which radically altered people's understanding of the world. So on some level, I'm sure he thought like 6,000 years before something roughly like this had happened. But it's a book that is, though it's much more important, is kind of the metaphorical and the allegorical substance of the thing than any question of what literally happened necessarily there, right? And I think that at the level of mythopoesis is where a story like this is really, uh, it's a poetic way of kind of expressing and explaining and telling a narrative about uh, universal human experience. Hmm. It's not the only story that needs to be said about that. But it is certainly one that is culturally significant. And because of the artistry uh, of someone like Milton, it's something that I think can work really well as a text that explains ourselves to ourselves to an extent. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, for an alcoholic, it might be that good things have to come out of the bad things, that you go through the sin and there is a greater good because it helps you appreciate things more after it's over, or it helps you kind of expand yourself to include both the good within and the bad within and help to make sense of it as you're going through this this journey out of alcoholism. Yeah, absolutely that. And I would also just add to that as well, I think an understanding of just how imperfect, irrational, and limited we are as individuals ourselves. And that's that's all Mm -hmm. of us, right? And I think it's all of us to varying degrees, but in some ways, alcoholics are lucky because, well, they're lucky if they come out of it, which most don't. But the thing that's the fortunate fall there is you have an awareness of your own limitations that when you're kind of in your cups and you're like trying to find truth at the bottom of a bottle, 
you're very much not aware of this, right? I mean, that's always the stereotype of the I can quit anytime I want alcoholic is there's this kind of myth that a lot of people have, even if they're not alcoholics, but they don't necessarily notice it as much. But this myth of being in complete control of your faculties all the time and knowing like you are master of your destiny. You are this kind of rugged individualist. If you're getting drunk every night, you're choosing to do that, right? Mm. And I think that for like the 10, 15 years, I was drinking really heavily. I had a very much of a, and I enjoyed it, you know, of course I enjoyed it most of the time because I, I don't think alcoholics would do it necessarily if they didn't, but then they keep doing it even when they don't enjoy it. And that's kind of when you reach your own Felix culpa, I guess. But anyone who's listening to this who's had a problem with drinking, I think is familiar with the certain rules that you come up with to try and like limit your drinking. So, to, you know, I'm only going to drink beer. I'm going to have a glass of water after every drink. I'm mm. going to, you know, only have one drink every hour. And like you inevitably always break those rules because you're not in control of yourself. You can't drink like normal people. You're just not capable of it. And at a certain point to get better, you have to kind of have this degradation, this fall where you realize, oh, I'm actually not in control of myself. I can't do this. I can't have one drink because that'll lead to like 15 drinks. Like other people, for whatever reasons of genetics and acculturation or whatever, they can, but like I can't. Right. And I think that we all have things like that in our life. Everyone has something, you know, that they're not in total control of. But kind of being aware, you know, the recovered alcoholic has the, the luckiness of having demonstrated to them a very obvious and often embarrassing and perhaps shameful way of how, in this particular way, they are not a rational agent. There's a part of them that's just beyond reason and that there's a certain defeat that has to be admitted in that. And I think that Milton is very much cognizant of that which is not rational about us. And I think lots of people... You see it all the time. I mean, like, look at the whole diet industry, right? Like, you can very easily just diet. Like, your dieting's not easy, right? Mm. Like, it's not easy at all. I mean, the compulsion to eat is oftentimes not rational, or the compulsion to gamble, or to get into bad relationships, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that acknowledgement of our difficulty, our complexity, and most of all, our fallibility is something that the story, the Genesis story, sort of stands in opposition to maybe more Panglossian ways of thinking that we're uh, driving the car all the time when we're not. And it maybe would suggest that when reading Paradise Lost, we're all going to see that essentially we're all Eve in some sense, and there's that temptation, but also we're all kind of Satan. You know, famously, Satan kind of steals the show, and, and I think the identification people have with him, it almost feels like he just runs away with things, and he's so compelling. And it feels like this is all sort of connected in my mind, that it has to do with our own flaws. You know, it's very hard to imagine what it would be like to be God, but you can kind of imagine a lot of the resentment or the, the weakness and the, the jealousy and some of the, yep. the qualities that are exhibited by Satan. I think very much so. And it's always, it's always been the main question in Milton criticism for like four centuries, right? It's like, why did this presumably steadfast Christian writer make Satan so sexy in, yeah. the, in the poem, right? God is like, he's kind of a boring tyrant and uh, Christ who appears because he hasn't been incarnated yet, but he's in the poem. He's kind of um, like an obsequious kiss ass almost in the poem. <laughs> whereas like the best lines all come from Satan, right? I mean, he's yeah. such a compelling figure. I mean, he's one of the, the triumphs of English literary creation. 
Uh, and so you have some interpretations, and probably most famously William Blake, who said, and that's the romantic poet who's writing uh, about a century after Milton, who says that Milton was of the devil's party and didn't know it, right? So you have that kind of mm. interpretation yeah. whereby Satan is basically like a righteous rebel against this authoritarian God, and that fundamentally there's something almost demonic about the poem in like a positive way. Uh, but Stanley Fish, who's a, a contemporary critic, he wrote a book called Surprised by Sin in the uh, 60s or 70s. And he basically argues that what Milton does is he tricks the reader to a certain extent into commiserating with Satan, buying his argument, being kind of tempted by him, like kind of reenacts the temptation while you're reading it. Uh, and then you realize what you've done by the end, right? Like you've kind of fallen for Satan in the same way that everyone's supposed to to fall for Satan, right? But whether you believe in Satan or not, I think that what's so interesting is that we all do have that uh, that inclination to be tempted, to have a, a kind of charismatic or uh, attractive figure tell us what it is that we want to hear, to speak to our envy, to speak to our pride. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's uh, an attribute oftentimes a great soteriological literature. You know, if you think about, and I don't go too far afield, but if you think about like the, what the third golden age of television or something, right? Like the, the all the great anti-heroes, mm, they mm-hmm. all do that, right? <laughs> right. It's Walter White. I mean, that was like the question with Breaking Bad. People were like, when do you give up on Walter White? And people, <laughs> because they liked him. And, you know, after he kills his partner's girlfriend or watches her die, basically, and you're like, oh, I guess I'll stick with this guy. Like, it's kind of uh, it's kind of compelled you into empathy with someone who doesn't really deserve it. And that's sort of, uh, I think that, like, Milton almost created the template for that sort of complicated character. Right. Okay. well, since you put Blake back on the table, I think we're going to have a cameo from him. Let's return to 2013. And you're on this search for Milton's grave. What happened? So, yes, I, uh, you know, wake up on the floor of my dorm room or whatever, and I decide I'm not going to the conference <laughs> that day mm, for the concluding mm-hmm. day. Uh, and one of the things, in addition to, uh, you know, drinking too much and, and going to the Globe Theater a lot, I had a very, like, 16th century, <laughs> apparently, time in London. But I enjoy visiting writer's graves, uh, mm-hmm. which is a tremendously dorky and strange vocation that I think a lot of people <laughs> actually like doing. Yeah. Because uh, you have this, like, this weird tangible connection, but you don't really, you know, but you, you feel like you do. And uh, London, of course, is chock, chock full of folks. So I was able to see uh, the rough plot in Deptford where, you know, Christopher Marlowe was probably buried. Uh, and I saw John Donne's memorial in St. Paul's and Sir Philip Sidney. Uh, and I decided, of course, I wanted to see the, the man himself. Uh, and I wanted to go out to uh, the, the, St. Giles at Cripplegate, I think, is the church. Yeah. It's in East <laughs> London. Uh, near, I know, it's terrible. Uh, near the Barbican Center. And so I'm kind of like, you know, I, I've got dry mouth and my head is thundering and I'm nauseous. And it's like 90 degrees out in a city that does not believe in air conditioning or ice. <laughs> and I'm kind of like just making my way down to the church. And, uh, you know, the, the church itself, Built all around it is the the Barbican Center, which is this very Orwellian, dystopian-looking kind of modern art performance space that was built in the ruins of of this part of London that was leveled by the Luftwaffe in, in the Second World War during the Blitz. Uh, but Milton's church survived, so it kind of has this like very you know like bluntly ugly thing around it, and then he's got this like little kind of medieval church that he is buried within. 
Uh, and so I get there and of course, uh, it's completely, uh, locked up. <laughs> there's no mm. way to get inside I'm trying to pull on the doors and look in and see what I can find. And there's nothing, I can't, I can't get in there. So I, I don't get to meet Milton. Uh, and I kind of take this as my, like, I've been looking for Milton and I, and I can't ever quite find him. Uh, but I instead head over to Bunhill Fields, which is where nonconformists, so people who weren't officially within the uh, the settlement of the Church of England in the late 17th and 18th century would be buried. So like dissenters and, and kind of uh, heretics who by this point were like begrudgingly accepted in that they weren't going to be burnt at the stake, but they weren't going to be able to be buried in like an official church. Uh, and luckily for me and my hobby, that had uh, a number of different folks who were buried there as well. Like Daniel Defoe is there, uh, and John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, is there. And then probably the most famous person who's interred there is uh, is William Blake. Mm. And he has this very kind of, it's sort of set off from the rest of the stones, and it's got a bit of space around it. And it's a handsome, very classical, but modest-looking uh, stone. Uh, and so I kind of just sort of spent, because Blake is another one of my, my touchstones, along with Milton, and I kind of view them, as everyone does, in tandem. You know, that mm-hmm. you, you don't really, you can't, you can't read Blake without having read Milton, but ironically, in some ways, you can't read Milton, even though he's the earlier poet, without also having read Blake. Uh, and one of the things that I, I think about uh, in how I sort of end this chapter is, you know, Blake had that great quote from uh, either Songs of Innocence and Experience or Proverbs of, of Heaven and Hell, but where he says, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom, right? Uh, and this is one of the things in my own kind of story that I think about is uh, there's a certain way in which um, the bad things that have happened to us and the bad things which we've done and that we're also responsible for, you know, not to be glib about it or be like, I'm glad, I'm glad a bad thing happened because I grew as a person, right? Like you can do it in a very, like a very cheap kind of way, I think. But, but beyond that, I do think that uh, there's a certain type of wisdom that comes from a certain way of living and, and maybe every way of living ultimately lends itself to a certain type of wisdom. Um but that was, you know, that was kind of on my mind one of those many days when you kind of like wake up shakily and you're not quite sure what you said to people or where you were. Uh, and you know that what you're doing is untenable, right? You mm. can't keep living that way or else uh, you're not going to keep living for long. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that there's a type of wisdom that came from those experiences as well. You know, I don't wish that that hadn't happened to me necessarily. As you were staring at Blake's grave, were you? Yeah. What was going through your mind? Were you proud of yourself, or ashamed, or aware oh, of ashamed. your limits? Ashamed. Very ashamed. Very yeah. ashamed. Yeah, I was embarrassed. Uh, I think about what you know, and this is this is how that process kind of always happens. And then you convince yourself it's not all that bad. It's fine. Everyone does this. And then, like you know, three nights later, you go out and you drink again. And you're ashamed again the next day. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that uh, there's a I think there is a wisdom that comes from like. I mean, it's, a, it's an experience to go through, right? I mean, it's probably better if you don't go through it. And, I, you know, I'm happy for folks that don't. And it's also an experience that, like, you do it in part because, obviously, like, you know, people drink because drinking is fun. And being drunk is fun, again, until it's not, right? So you, you have a – you're privy to a certain um, sense of failure and complexity, through that sort of experience. And I imagine that's true for people who have any sort of addiction or, or trauma or whatever in that regard. Do you view Milton and Blake and your experience reading them as having somehow affected your own personal journey or do you view them, do you view it more as they've helped you make sense of it? 
Definitely the latter. Yeah. Definitely the latter. I don't think I, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like one day I was reading paradise lost and I was like time to quit drinking. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't know that I don't know that like even great literature is necessarily always capable of that. I mean, I, I don't think we know what is capable of changing us or making us mm-hmm. better people. Sometimes I think that's part of the irrationalism of it. You know, that's the whole there, but for the grace of God, go, I kind of thing is like, I don't really know all the time why the people who drink quit drinking. And I don't know why some people continue drinking. Like I don't, you know, it's hard. It's hard to really say. And I think that part of the sense that, that there's something irrational or bigger than ourselves in our lives. And it doesn't have to do with worth or merit or, or who's deserving or necessarily even luck, but it's like mysterious in some ways. I, I think I got that from both Blake and Milton to an extent. I didn't quit drinking uh, for another two years after this. Uh, and it got worse and worse and worse all the time. I mean, this was like, this, that story's not a particularly bad story, all things considered. And the, the sort of rock bottom drinking I had, I don't, it was up there for bad experiences I'd had as a drinker but I wouldn't say it was necessarily the worst. But why was that when I quit drinking? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I remember I talked to a friend the day after and, and he just said, you know, you never have to feel this way again. And boom, didn't drink again. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what it was with that. People had certainly told me before, you know, I was a rational person. I was, I was able to know what drinking was doing to my relationships with people, with my life, with my career, with my physical health. I could read the data. But none of that necessarily ever really made a dent. And certainly people had been much more maybe aggressive in saying, hey, you've got a problem, you need to do this or that. And, and from a well-meaning place, too. I'm not saying that it wasn't. But for whatever reason, it was just like one thing that I heard, and that was the end of it. So I wouldn't be surprised necessarily if, if somebody has gotten sober from Paradise Lost or Blake. And that's a kind of ineffable thing that's out there where you don't. It's just it's hard to say, and it's it's humbling. I think it's a it's a, so that that awareness of the kind of mystery of things uh, that are bigger than us. Uh, I think Milton has helped me make some sense of that. Right. It reminds me of that story of James Carville, and he was saying that he, he had been a racist when he was younger, and then he read To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. and he said, "I knew twenty pages in that that Harper Lee was right, and I." was wrong. And it is, you know, this wonderful story about the power of literature. But on the other yeah. hand, obviously, he's a very unusual situation where that works. Otherwise, we'd be able to solve problems. You know, we just hand out copies of it, which we pretty much do. And yet here we are. Yeah. If yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone could just be handed a copy of Paradise Lost, you know, we... <laughs> and that was enough. Things wouldn't be so hard to eradicate. But let's leave things there. The book is called Heaven, Hell, and Paradise Lost from the Bookmarked series. Ed Simon, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Emily Dickinson for her poem number 134 and to Ed Simon. Of course, you can buy his book, Heaven, Hell, and Paradise Lost at bookstores everywhere. We will be back next time with the Cambridge Companion to Comics. And Borges is next Monday, so please tune in then as well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.